Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Previously on Truth and Justice. This lead got Detective Royster's attention and he called Mrs. Williams. Mrs. Williams informed Royster that it wasn't her brother that was staying with her at the time of Mrs. Gove's murder. It was her husband's brother, Kenneth Ray Williams. Royster's notes state that Kenneth tried to lie to him about his prior offenses, but when he confronted him with his record, he finally came clean. He eventually did admit that he was indeed staying with his brother on Mill Valley Lane at the time of the murder. Royce's report states the following regarding Kenneth Ray Williams. Quote, It is my opinion he is the suspect in this offense. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. But the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. If you've already listened to this week's Friday follow-up episode, you know that I'm already in Texas right now. This episode will drop on Sunday the 21st, which means yesterday, Ashley, Mercedes, and Rudy just graduated from the Texas Tech University School of Law. So congratulations again to Ashley, Mercedes, and Rudy. Now, as you also know from listening to this week's Friday follow-up, The law school graduation was only part of my reason for making this trip. Again, today is Sunday, and by today, I'm back in Dallas investigating Kiao's case. Things have been pretty hectic for the last couple of weeks. As you know, we had a week off for Mother's Day, and now we've had this trip. We've been cramming a lot of recording into a very short period of time. And to be honest, it's been just a little bit difficult because we're making some real progress in narrowing down our suspect list as to who actually killed Kiao Gove. But in doing so, we have to be very careful not to tip our hand and not to dox anyone or put out anyone's name without vetted evidence that they may actually be a suspect. And those are some of the reasons why I'm down in Texas right now. I've gone just about as far as I can go in investigating this group of, quote, Grove Rats online from Michigan. I'm in Texas today because it's time to start knocking on doors and asking some questions face to face. And since this episode was recorded before I left, it's going to be a little bit of a mix and match. I have three different things that I want to cover with you today. So before I get into any of that, we're going to take a quick 90-second break to hear from one of our sponsors, and then we're going to get right into today's content.
Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? I personally know from years of experience in the construction industry, in the fire department, and even here in the studios that hiring the right person is no easy task. I've used newspaper advertising, radio advertising, and even social media, and it's just always a difficult process. But with ZipRecruiter, it's easy. And here's how ZipRecruiter is different. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash truth. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash truth. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash truth. This is a collect call from Jesse Eldridge. An offender at Hughes Units. This call is being recorded and is subject to monitoring. Thank you for using CenturyLink. You may start the conversation now. Well, good afternoon, sir. Hey, Jesse, how you been, man? I haven't talked to you in forever. Oh, well, we just, uh, it's, it's been hectic here. We Without water for a week, we uh, locking, they lock us down without, go figure, you get locked down without water, but... They still take you to work without water, working in laundry. I haven't had a chance to talk to Jesse in over two weeks. The Unity's Inn went through lockdown a few weeks ago, and then last week a water main broke, of all things, which caused Jesse to have to work some longer hours in the laundry room, which again is odd because there's no water. But anyway, our schedules just didn't line up for the last couple of weeks, so it was great to hear from Jesse again. And one of the reasons that I wanted to play that little clip there is for you to hear what I'm starting to hear from Jesse. What was the problem? Oh, it happened. The city city water main broke, and come to find out, that was the main that supplied the unit and half the city besides that. But it, it's just man, believe me, being a week without water is a, a very educating experience. I I, mean, we, I can't even imagine. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it it's different out there because everybody can go out and get gallons of water from stores or you know whatever. But in here, it's different. And if, believe it or not, if we were, if this was a zoo, people all over the world would be shooting us water, sending water. When I first started speaking to him several months ago, I heard a man that was very reserved. He was really afraid to show any emotion. And he definitely was struggling with trusting me. And it's just been awesome for me to watch that evolution of Jesse's personality over the last couple of months to where now when I answer the phone, he just sounds excited to talk to me. He sounds upbeat and full of hope. My relationship with Jesse has certainly been an interesting ride. I remember the first time that I talked to him, and I remember thinking, well, this is just going to be all business. Jesse seems like a good guy with a troubled past, but he and I aren't going to be friends. That's just not how he rolls. We're going to talk business, and that's going to be it. But it's just amazing that as the walls have broken down, 
that much like I was and still am with Ed Eight, I look forward to hearing from Jesse now. And I think he looks forward to talking to me. I think that we have become friends. And every time I talk to him, he is so appreciative of all of you. Several people have started writing Jesse letters, and he's so thankful to Desiree and the Sarahs for transcribing our episodes and sending them out to him. It's just been really uplifting for him to be able to read what's happening, and he's been sharing it with the whole unit. So half of the Hughes unit right now is up to date with Jesse's case, because as of right now, that's the favorite reading material on the block. I spoke with Jesse for about an hour yesterday, and my conversation with him was definitely not all fun and games. We did talk some business. I mentioned last week that Jesse has a friend who he used to be cellmates with who considers himself a Grove Rat and said that he might know some of the people that we're looking into right now. So last week I gave Jesse a list of names to go over with his buddy Hunter. Uh, Your buddy Hunter, did you ever talk to him about any of those names we mentioned? Yeah, I talked to Hunter and his, uh, his little group that he hung around with are like the next stage of that group right there. They're the, the, the younger brothers of that group right there. Okay. Yeah, you know, Hunter's like 42 or 43, and it's like they're the younger stage of that group, a few years younger than them even. 40. And, uh, how old is, how old is Troy? Troy is. He'd be about that, isn't he? Yeah, he's about that age, 44, 43, something like that. Okay. So that would have been put those people, uh, being about 20, 21 years old about the time of the, of the murder. Yeah, right around Troy's age right then, yes. Okay. So he recognized those names? Uh Hunter recognized the the the, the two brothers. He didn't recognize the Nelms name. And the uh the he he recognized his name. Okay. And uh and there's a girl associated with uh what was her name? So so he knew and he knew yes he knew the and he knew uh, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show we're kind of at a stalling point right now with our investigation into the Grove Rats there's not much more information I can give you without revealing some of these people's identities so what I want to do here for just a couple of minutes is to kind of give you a summary as best I can as to why we're still very interested in this group of men And then we're going to hit pause on our Grove Rats investigation for now, and we're going to move on to another lead. So this is where we're at right now with the Grove Rats. We have Jesse James Wendell and Judy Gonzalez's statements that on the morning that Kia was abducted and killed, that they saw a group of men dragging a woman into a white Z-28 Camaro near the intersection of Apache and Grady Lane and take off towards September Street. So this is our initial lead as to why we might be looking for a white Z-28 Camaro. We couple that with the fact that Kiao had told her husband just a couple of days before that there was a white, she said, Cadillac that was following her and bothering her. We believe that this white car, whatever was going on with it, had scared Kiao enough to cause her to start carrying around a knife for protection during her walks. As we began looking for connections to any white Z-28 Camaro, We did find that there was one that was in that neighborhood at that time. And as we look deeper, what we haven't revealed yet is that one of the individuals attached to the only white Z-28 Camaro that we're aware of that was roaming those streets in 1991 at the same time had a white Cadillac. So we have this one individual that's connected to both a white Cadillac and a white Z-28 Camaro in that neighborhood. 
So that just opens the door even further into the possibility that the white Z28 Camaro lead is credible. Because not only does it tie in with what Kiao told her husband as far as a white American-made car that starts with CA, but the same family is also connected to a white Cadillac. Then once we start looking into the individual that's connected to this white Z28 Camaro, we start comparing that to the list of names that Ronnie Blackwell had given Detective Watts, some of the teachers, the former students, and we start finding that there's this tangled web of people known as the Grove Rats. And the people that all seem to be connected to this one man with the white Z28 Camaro and the white Cadillac all have violent criminal histories and most seem to be racist. And as we dig even further, we find that this one unnamed individual, at least at one point, appears to have actually been a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Although it seems that in recent days, he's renounced the Klan. He has most certainly been in and out of prison, along with almost all of his cohorts. And one thing that really caught my attention, besides some of his cryptic posts, indicating there were things that him and the other Grove Rats had done in Pleasant Grove that could never be spoken about again, he also has a few tattoos that are concerning. This gentleman has three or four teardrop tattoos on his cheek under his eye. I've asked Ed Eights and Jesse Eldridge what those teardrop tattoos mean, because I've heard several different things. When I asked Ed, it was pretty clear. A teardrop tattoo means you murdered someone. And as far as he knew, that was it. When I talked to Jesse Eldridge, he said that nowadays the meaning of the teardrop has gotten misconstrued from what it originally meant. He said that some guys now will put teardrops in their eyes, indicating how many times they've been to prison. People have put teardrops in their eyes, indicating how many times they've been raped in prison. He said, but none of that was the case back when he was roaming the streets. He said back in the early 90s, a teardrop tattoo meant one thing, that you had killed someone. Furthermore, we know that this particular group of, quote, Grove Rats... Well, and actually, I should correct that because I don't know that these particular individuals, but what I know is the group known as the Grove Rats that may or may not have included the four or five people that I'm referring to now are known for being drug dealers. They're known for dealing marijuana and methamphetamines. In fact, if you're interested in a little history lesson about the Grove Rats, you should check out an old episode of the TV show, The First 48, titled Murder in Pleasant Grove. Just punch that into Google and I'm sure you'll find a link to the episode. And I really would recommend that you watch it because it's actually very eerie to watch this video knowing what we know now about the Grove Rats. And then considering the fact that these may be the people that are connected with Kiao's murder. So as of right now, that's as far as I can go into the Grove Rats investigation as far as what's being broadcast on the podcast. Hopefully, the trip that I'm on right now as you're listening to this will produce some new leads and we can dig even deeper and get even closer. But as I've mentioned a few times leading up to this, we are still in the evidence-gathering phase of this investigation. We're testing out hypotheses, but one thing that we cannot do is get blinders on. We can't focus in on the Grove Rats and assume that they are the culprits because the reality is they very well could have nothing to do with this. Everything we have on this group right now is circumstantial evidence that may not amount to anything. And so for right now, I'm going to ask you to do something that may be a little bit difficult. We're going to hit pause on the Grove Rats investigation. 
and we're going to look into another lead. And what I need you to do, if you're one of those people who have decided that the Grove Rats are our most likely suspect, is to try to put that out of your mind and listen to this next segment with an open mind. Because having tunnel vision is what causes wrongful convictions to begin with. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Remember back to episode 302, where we broke down all the leads that Detective Royster looked into for the 18 months that he was investigating Kiao's murder. As a quick refresher, it was in July of 1992, almost exactly a year after Kiao's murder, when Dallas PD received an anonymous phone call The anonymous caller said that she was at a Tupperware party, and at the party, one of the ladies said that a man that lived on her street was the man who killed the, quote, Vietnamese lady, and that he disappeared right after the murder. At the time, the caller didn't know the man's name, but she knew who his sister was. The sister's name was Barbara Williams. Of course, Royster tracked down Barbara Williams, and Mrs. Williams told Royster that she wasn't referring to her brother. She was referring to her husband's brother and the man's name was Kenneth Ray Williams. After that, Royster contacted Mrs. Williams' husband, who confirmed to Royster that his brother had indeed been living with them around the time of the murder. It was about four months after that when Royster finally tracked Kenneth Ray Williams down. At that time, he was in prison. Royster interviewed Williams. We don't know a whole lot about what went on in that interview, other than the fact that Williams tried to lie to Royster about his criminal past, But what we do know is that when Royster ended his investigation, his final note reads as follows. Quote, It is my opinion he is the suspect in this offense. However, unless an eyewitness comes forward, it cannot be proven. So when Royster threw in the towel into the investigation into Keow's murder, it was his opinion that Kenneth Ray Williams was the most likely suspect. But what we haven't discussed yet was what went on with Kenneth Ray Williams after Detective Don Watts took over the case. But before we get into Watts' investigation, I want to break down Kenneth Ray Williams' criminal history. The first thing that I wanted to know was why was Kenneth Ray Williams in the penitentiary to begin with? As it turns out, Williams has been to prison three times. In fact, a Texas penitentiary is where Kenneth Ray Williams is residing right now. As a matter of fact, he's been residing in that prison almost as long as Jesse Eldridge has. On February 8, 1996, this is just about two weeks after Jesse's trial, Kenneth Ray Williams was convicted of sexual assault by forcing oral sex. And as a habitual offender, he was sentenced to 35 years in prison. So let's first talk about that offense and how it might relate to Keow's case. 
Now, one thing that we've known all along, or at least think we've known, is that Kiao Gove was not sexually assaulted. Neither her pants, her girdle, or her underpants were removed during her attack, and the rape kit came back negative. There's literally no indication or evidence whatsoever that she was sexually assaulted. But what had never occurred to me, until reading Kenneth Ray Williams' rap sheet, is forced oral sex. And when I pulled Kenneth Ray Williams' Dallas County arrest records, I found that he had been charged with sexual assault involving forced oral sex, not once, not twice, but three times. So it's at least worth noting that Kenneth Ray Williams' M.O. seems to be sexual assault that doesn't involve taking someone's pants off. But let's continue on with Kenneth Ray Williams' arrest record. So in 1992, when Royster was interviewing Kenneth Ray Williams, he was in prison. The reason that he was in prison was because in 1989, he was convicted of arson. And by looking a little deeper into that, this was actually a plea agreement that involved robbery and arson, and he was sentenced to five years, but only served just over a year for this offense, and then was out on parole. But on July 16th of 1992, his parole was revoked, and he was sent back to prison. The parole revocation was due to Williams not reporting to his parole officer, and as I dug a little bit deeper, it also involves another sexual assault that involved a knife, the knife that was placed into evidence during Jesse Eldridge's trial. For these offenses, he was put back into prison to serve the remainder of his five years. He got out of prison somewhere around 1995 and wasn't out very long before he started committing all these sexual assaults, some with children, some with adults, that landed him in prison for the next 35 years. And just a quick summary of some of his other charges just out of Dallas County. He's been charged with aggravated robbery a couple of times, aggravated assault, arson twice, auto theft, criminal trespassing, criminal mischief, he has a marijuana conviction, and then in 95, all of these sexual assaults. So that's a little bit on who Kenneth Ray Williams is. So let's get back to what Detective Don Watts did with Royster's note that says that Williams was the prime suspect. Now remember, Detective Don Watts took over the case in August of 1993. You remember a few episodes back that during this time, the month of August, Watts was hot on the trail of the white Z-28 Camaro. He spent about six days going back and forth from the school and talking to witnesses before he decided the white Z-28 Camaro could be written off as a possible lead. Well, it was right after that when Watts started digging into Kenneth Ray Williams. On August 21st, Watts talked to Gladys Blanford. Now, remember Gladys Blanford from episode 302 was the woman who said that she had seen a black male walking in the area around 7 o'clock in the morning and said that she believed that Robert Moffat should be a suspect. The preacher used to shake his hand and talk to himself while he was walking in the morning. While Watts was interviewing Blanford, she said that she lived right next door to the family of Kenneth Ray Williams. She didn't remember if Williams was living there at the time of the murder, but she said her daughter remembers that he was. She described Williams as being a vulgar man, and that she and Williams had got into an argument after she found out that Williams and his nephew had been saying vulgar things. It seemed that Williams was telling her daughter, as she put it, quote, you lick my blank and I'll lick your blank. End quote, and etc. She described Williams as being childish, that he was always playing with children in the area. She said that he would go with kids to the schoolyard as well. And Ms. Blanford's daughter said that Williams left the area shortly after the murder. 
So this was the first lead that Watts had after picking up the investigation. But it didn't stop there. At the end of this note dated on the 21st of August, it reads as follows, quote, Miss Blanford said that her brother is a preacher and is witnessing to inmates, etc. Her brother told her that several inmates told him that Williams had told them that he had killed the complainant. I gave her my card and requested that her brother call me. That little note definitely caused a double take. Gladys Blanford's brother is a preacher witnessing to inmates at the prison, and apparently several of these inmates said that they know Kenneth Ray Williams and that he was talking about the fact that he had killed Kiao Gove. Well, this got the hairs up on the back of Watts' neck as well, and I think this may be a big part of the reason why he gave up on the white Z-28 Camaro. This lead seemed much more promising. A few days later, on the 26th, there's another note in the report. It says that Watts called Mrs. Blanford again to ask if she had spoken with her brother yet about the inmates. And he also contacted a Joe Nesbeth, who it's redacted here, but it appears as someone who works in the prison, because it says that he requested the names of all the cellmates Williams had when he returned to prison on July 16th of 92. It says Mr. Nesbeth will call back with the requested information, but there are no indications in the report that he ever did. The next note where we read anything about Kenneth Ray Williams is on October 30th, 1993, a couple of months later. The note reads as follows. Contacted Miss Blanford again about the information that her brother has. She said that her brother still refuses to say who he spoke with, but that the conversation did occur while at TDC. TDC is the prison. So it's starting to look here like Detective Don Watts has got a pretty solid bead on Kenneth Ray Williams. There are more statements throughout the notes about William's brother and his cousin and his sister-in-law all having reservations and some indication that they think maybe he was involved, but no one seems to know for certain. But then we have the possibility that he might have confessed to his cellmate in prison that he was in fact the killer. And then the investigation just seems to end right here on October 30th, 1993. So the question is, why stop now? Why not follow up on these leads? I'm quite certain at this point that I do not have the entire police file as I'm supposed to. Now, of course, I only have what the Dallas DA's office sent me. I have still not had any response from the Dallas Police Department, who would have all of the police files. But I have none of the handwritten notes, and I would really like to know what was happening between these typed-out notes. Did Don Watts actually ever talk to Mrs. Blanford's brother? Did the guy from the prison ever call back with a list of cellmates? Did Watts ever talk to the cellmates? We just don't know because none of it's included here. But what we do know is that the exact date, October 30th, 1993, where we find the last note about Kenneth Ray Williams in the official record, included in that same note, is the first official contact that Watts has with Carol Eldridge. So if we put Don Watts' investigation on a timeline, it looks like this. He starts looking at the white Z-28 Camaro. He's hot on the trail. He's got a list of names and leads and suspects. And then he talks to someone who says that Kenneth Ray Williams confessed to the murder in prison. The next note in the report says that the Z-28 clearly isn't connected to the crime. And he moves on to investigating Kenneth Ray Williams. He's hot on the trail of Williams. Again, we have someone saying that he's confessed to a cellmate. We have people that said they saw a black male in the neighborhood that morning. He has a violent history. 
and he had confessed to being in the neighborhood at that time. But then Carol Eldridge's calls and says, my son knows who did it. Watts meets Troy Eldridge and decides that Kenneth Ray Williams is no longer a suspect. When you break it down and look at Watts' investigation, you can see the pattern. He's on a lead like a dog on a bone until an easier route to the finish line presents itself. Chasing down this huge list of names with the Z28 Camaro, that's tough. That requires police work. But having a lead that someone is talking about the fact that they heard directly a confession from Kenneth Ray Williams? Well, that's easy. That's right up Watts' alley as the master interrogator. Just get a witness to talk. That's what he does. And while he's in the midst of trying to track down this cellmate, he gets another lead that's even easier yet. An apparently weak-minded and somewhat spineless Troy Eldridge looks like the easier target. And Kenneth Ray Williams drops off the map. But this isn't the last we hear from Kenneth Ray Williams. He was actually called to trial to testify. Now his testimony was basically milquetoast. He doesn't say much other than admitting that he was in the neighborhood. He says that his nephew's girlfriend lived next door and she called and told them about the murder. He says other than that, he doesn't know anything about it. We do find out through his testimony that he did give hair samples for DNA testing. And we discover something else that's really interesting. Kenneth Ray Williams says that he took a polygraph examination regarding Kiao's case. The prosecutor, Blackman, immediately objects to this, and we don't hear another word about it throughout Kenneth Ray Williams' testimony. But later in the trial, Detective Don Watts gets on the stand, and that's where we find out that Kenneth Ray Williams failed his polygraph. So if you're keeping a polygraph scorebook, Troy Elders was asked to take a polygraph, and he refused. Kenneth Ray Williams was asked to take a polygraph regarding Kiao's murder, and he failed. Deception indicated. And Jesse Eldridge, the man who's been sitting in prison for this murder for over 20 years, he also took a polygraph, and he's the only one who passed. How the hell did that happen? All these leads. One gets ignored for an easier route. Then that one gets ignored for an even easier route. And the end result is Jesse Eldridge being convicted of a crime that he didn't commit. Jesse got a little emotional on the phone today. I told him that while I was in Texas, I was going to try to go talk to his brother again. And he asked me to give Troy a message for him. You know, Bob, when you, when you do see, if you do see Troy, if you do talk to him, mm -hmm. if you could convey just one message from me. I can do that. Just, man, just tell him, uh, whatever he thought by, he got what he wanted. Whatever. He got what he wanted. I'm, uh, dude, uh, I'm through. I don't want no more. <laughs> I never thought I'd hear myself say some shit like that. Especially after all this. But just tell him, tell him. If he, he won, if that's, I'm actually, I've been beat. Yeah, just tell him I've been beat. He beat me. Tell him I concede he beat me. 
I'll, I will tell him that. As a matter of fact, I may, I may take that, uh, take that recording and play that for him. Yeah. Troy, if you're listening, and at this point, I think that maybe you are, you've heard it now right out of your brother's own mouth. He acknowledges that you've beat him. And I think that that's something that he's never admitted before, that he's been bested. Jesse is past rage. He's past anger. He's past denial. He's finally reached a point where he can accept the fact that you beat him. And he's ready to move on. It's time to come clean, Troy, and put an end to this nightmare. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. Our sound engineer is Shane Yoder. All music for this episode was created, scored, and mastered by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to our transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Hoyt, and Sarah Mueller. And thank you to Chris Brinkley for designing, creating, and maintaining our website. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Get involved in the conversations on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. You can also like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And don't forget, you can always send us voicemails at 269-224-2833 for the Friday follow-up episodes. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. <laughs>